Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Andrew Bowser. And I'm Sapphire Sandalo. And welcome to Alter Weekly. Today on the show, we're going to talk with writer Joan Ford in our segment, Better Off Dead, where we dive into the slasher cult classic Sleepaway Camp and discuss how damaging some of its themes are in relation to gender identity. Then we'll talk with filmmaker Bria Grant about her two feature films, 12 Hour Shift and Lucky, and get in depth with her about what it took to get both of those films off the ground the same year. And if you're part of the Alter Society, stick with us, because at the end of the show, we're going to discuss the two movies we watched this week, May the Devil Take You and May the Devil Take You Too. But before all that, it's Friday the 13th tomorrow. (gasps) So spooky. So spooky, and I love that we get a Friday the 13th this soon after Halloween, because it feels like an excuse to stay spooky, you know? Right. Kind of stay in the spooky pocket, as it were. Do you have any, do you know why people are afraid of Friday the 13th? No, and I should, (laughs) because we're talking about Friday the 13th, but I've only ever related Friday the 13th to the movies. Mm. I don't think, I think I learned secondarily that the movies are called that because of the phobia around the day. Oh, interesting. Do you know the history? Do you know the history of Friday the 13th as a so, general superstition? Right. There's no real one uh, single, uh, what do you call it, origin of the fear. Yeah. But there's a lot of different theories. The one that that I find the most entertaining is the one uh, that has to do with Jesus. Because Jesus died on Friday and people think that it was Friday the 13th that he Whoa, died. I didn't know. It, I Wow. I didn't know that you at didn't all. You know Jesus died on even... a Friday? I didn't know Jesus ever died. No. <laughs> um, no, I didn't know that 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 there was any Friday the 13th mythology wrapped up in Jesus. Yeah. Stuff. Oh, it's just, you know, one of the theories. But that's one way to go. Well, do you know any of the others? Um, you know, I I don't. Well, what's great about uh, the fact that this podcast is recorded ahead of time is we could always throw to future Bowser with the answer. Future Bowser? Hey, past Sapphire and past Bowser. Future Bowser here. Look, I'm in a bit of a rush. There's a robot uprising happening just outside my door. But here's what I got from history.com. While Western cultures have historically associated the number 12 with completeness, there are 12 days of Christmas, 12 months and zodiac signs, 12 labors of Hercules, 12 gods of Olympus, and 12 tribes of Israel. Just to name a few examples, its successor, 13, has a long history as a sign of bad luck. The ancient code of Hammurabi, for example, reportedly omitted a 13th law from its list of legal rules. Though this was probably a clerical error, superstitious people sometimes point to this as proof of 13's long-standing negative associations. Fear of the number 13 has earned a psychological term even, triskaidekaphobia. Now, why is Friday the 13th unlucky? Well, according to biblical tradition, 13 guests attended the Last Supper, including Jesus and his 12 apostles, one of whom Judas betrayed him. The next day, of course, was Good Friday, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. The seating arrangement at the Last Supper is believed to have given rise to a long-standing Christian superstition that having 13 guests at a table was a bad omen, specifically that it was courting death. Friday was also said to be the day Eve gave Adam the fateful apple from the Tree of Knowledge, as well as the day Cain killed his brother Abel. In more recent times, a number of traumatic events have occurred on Friday the 13th, including the German bombing of Buckingham Palace, the murder of Kitty Genovese in Queens, a cyclone that killed more than 300,000 people in Bangladesh, the disappearance of Chilean Air Force plane in the Andes, the death of rapper Tupac Shakur, and and the crash of the Costa Concordia cruise ship off the coast of Italy, which killed 30 people. All right, that's all I have time for. Gotta go fight these robots. Bye. Well, thank you, Future Bowser. Uh, you, you did a lot of Googling uh, just in time, and we appreciate it. Uh, what about the movies Friday the 13th? What's mm-hmm. your relationship to them? You know, I'll be honest. Not okay. a franchise that I uh, was ever really drawn to. Um, okay. I watched the first one and did not like it at all. Yeah. Um, and I understand fully that it's not 
similar to any of the ones that like followed it but I just I I just didn't like it enough for me to want to keep watching the rest. <laughs> uh, I've always had an affinity for the franchise. Okay. And if I'm being honest, can I be can I be real Wait, for a this second? This is an honesty podcast, Bowser. <laughs> okay. I always liked Okay, I'm already regretting oh what I'm about God. to say. Oh my god. I always liked Friday the 13th more than Halloween. Hot take. Okay. Now, here's my hot take, um, and it's changed over the years. I think originally, okay, first of all, let it be known that Jamie Lee Curtis is um, my all-time favorite human being. Okay. So there's no question uh, I would die for her. So let's get that out of the way. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but as a teenager, there was something about the iconography of Friday the 13th that excited me more. Hmm. I don't know if it was as simple as the the hockey mask and uh, and the machete. There was something that I I liked about Jason Voorhees as a villain more than Michael Myers. I mean, I think ultimately my favorite became Freddy Krueger because of the surrealism and the and the comedy mm-hmm. aspect, the dark humor. But if it's just Friday the 13th versus Halloween as a teenager, it was Friday the 13th for me. And then as I watched all of the entries in the franchise, I became, um, I guess, romanced by oh, how <laughs> how improvised the mythology was, which I, I know you don't necessarily like. The fact I that, don't. right, the fact that, like, in one instance, uh, Jason's fighting a telekinetic child, and then in the next instance, he's he's powered by a, a worm from hell. You know, it's it's all over the place. But I think something about the way it uh, makes up what it is is why I like it. Okay. Um, that it, it it's whatever the filmmakers thought was a way forward at the time. That's what I like. Um, and even in how it was built out, have you ever heard the story that the producer, uh, Sean Cunningham and creator ultimately of the franchise, was was very overtly trying to ride off the success of Halloween. So he thought, Mm -hmm. okay, well, what's a holiday? We need a holiday. That's what made Halloween a success. Oh, and a mask. And a a mask. Well, well, but although, uh, and you probably know this, but he didn't have the mask till part three. Mm. Um, Which is also a thing I love. I love the fact that uh, Sean Cunningham put the cart way before the horse. He just saw the success of Halloween and said, I'm going to design a logo, get a logo designed for Friday the 13th, take out an ad in Variety that says, in a matter of months, the most terrifying film you'll ever see is coming to theaters, Friday the 13th. And when that ad hit Variety, there was not a script. <laughs> wow. I find that really inspiring, actually. What? <laughs> you don't think that's idiotic? I don't know if it's idiotic, but I mean, I guess in hindsight, it it wasn't because it led to a a money-making franchise. But I think it's that gamble that I am attracted to. I think I also thought it was really cool that it's it's famous for being the franchise uh, that features Jason Voorhees. But the first film, Mm -hmm. it isn't Jason. Right. He's not even in it. At he's all, in really. it as a as a child, um, but um, not as, like, but he's the not Jason that we totally. Know. Yeah. He's, right, he's not Jason as we know Jason. But that did that matter to you? No, <laughs> no. I guess I don't know. I think maybe I because it is so famous that I was like, yeah. all right, cool, cool, cool. When I watch it, it's gonna be you know at least like fun and entertaining. And I don't know it. And I understand it also was one of the movies that sort of set the whole like. Uh, we have sex, you die stereotypes. Right, like. right. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I in my you know that I don't love the eighties. <laughs> totally, I know and the eighties. It's a favorite decade. Um, I know. I'll look for ways to defend bad eighties movies. I know. <laughs> it, that one might have been two eighties for me. <laughs> I think what I like about Friday the Thirteenth is that. Um, None of the films are like iconic standalone films. It's it's famous for being a franchise that simply persists. 
And that's why you I, like it. And that's what I, I realized you know as I explained. That, okay, Bowser, what you just said is literally <laughs> the equivalent of people saying the Kardashians are famous for being famous. You're, and, like, you, you are completely right. <laughs> <laughs> You're completely right in that comparison. I know. And yet, yet I, I have strong allegiance toward it. Because I think, you know, not not speaking of the Kardashians, but speaking of of the franchise, there is something to applaud in just that okay. that it made itself something uh, for arguably no reason. It just I made itself something. I guess that applies to the Kardashians too. I guess it does. I guess it does. They've built an empire. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Out of being famous for being famous. Mm-hmm. I'm so and, sorry and, and for and bringing I, them up. <laughs> no, podcast. I think it's a. I think it's a very insightful comparison because it's true that even the iconography of Jason, it, it just it just is. I mean, mm-hmm. he he gets the hockey mask in number three, and you'd think there was this uh, monumental mo this moment that was felt predestined, and no, he just picks up a mask that one of the other characters had as a goof. Right. It's it, it really did kind of trip into becoming iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have anything to say. From a filmmaking perspective, <laughs> or a character perspective, um, gosh, I'm like criticizing myself <laughs> out of loving this thing. I, I think you love the idea of Friday the Thirteenth more than you love Friday the Thirteenth. That may be true. That may be true. <laughs> but the Kardashians, I just love. <laughs> yeah. News slash. That's right, it's time for your news slash Hulu has pulled the plug on Stephen King-based series Castle Rock after two seasons. According to Deadline, uh, there were no expectations for a third installment, and the decision to end the series after two seasons was made a while ago. The series premiered back in 2018 with a debut season that centered on Bill Skarsgård's The Kid, a mysterious inmate at Shawshank State Penitentiary. The much superior second season followed the Stephen King storyline from Misery and featured Lizzie Kaplan as Annie Wilkes. The final girl's director, Todd Strauss Schulson, is taking on a zombie movie. That's right, it's an action comedy called New York Will Eat You Alive, and it stars Colin Firth in an adaptation inspired by and based on characters created by Jai Hybo in Zombie Brothers, which was a comic on Tencent Pictures' digital comics and animation platform. Strauss-Schulson will direct from a screenplay by Alex Rubens. And bad news for Friday the 13th, the game fans. The dedicated servers for Friday the 13th, the game, will be decommissioned in the upcoming patch, which is set to roll out this month. And what this means is that the game will revert back to -to peer-to-peer matchmaking for quick play lobbies. The database servers, however, will stay active and continue to house all player progression and unlocks, so users can continue to play Friday the 13th, the game, via peer-to-peer quick play and private matches. The patch that will go live in November will also be the final patch for the game. The team has been hard at work completing fixes for a long list of player issues to include in that final patch, and the community can expect finalized patch notes to be released in the week prior to that patch going live. And that's your newsflash. Newsflash. It is time for Better Off Dead. Today we are joined by writer Joan Ford to discuss the slasher cult classic Sleepaway Camp. Well, thanks for joining us, Joan, to discuss Sleepaway Camp. How are you? I'm great. How are y'all? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready. I'm ready to dive in and talk about Sleepaway Camp and whether or not it's better off dead. So for those that don't know, Sleepaway Camp is a 1983 horror film directed by Robert Hiltzik, and it stars Felissa Rose as Angela. The plot of the film uh, is, I was going to say, pretty straightforward. It's kind of a camp slasher movie. But the truth is, you'll hear as we discuss, it's not its not that straightforward. Uh, it gets a little convoluted, a lot of flashbacks, uh, a twisting narrative of sorts. But it's about young Angela and her brother Peter, who are at the lake with their father and, and their father's lover when an accident occurs and the father is, is killed. And then we are to assume Angela and Peter... Uh, go off and live with their aunt Martha. I'm sorry, Angela 
goes off to live with their aunt Martha. But this is actually where it gets confusing. Uh, Peter dies, but after that initial accident, we see Angela, now 12 or 13, with a boy of the same age. And I remember when I first saw Sleepaway Camp, I thought, oh, wait, so her brother didn't die. But that's her cousin, I guess. Uh, She was raised uh, with uh, her cousin at her side. So anyway, they go off to camp together and uh, mayhem ensues. Uh, Counselors and kids begin to show up dead and there is a slasher on the loose. Now, obviously, for anyone that hasn't seen Sleepaway Camp, there is a a twist or um, a character reveal at the end that's mostly what this film is known for. And we want to be sensitive to people that want to avoid spoilers, but there's no way to have this discussion without that spoiler. So I would say if you haven't seen Sleepaway Camp, pause this podcast now, go watch it, and then come back and join us. So let's start with this. (laughs) What uh, is your relationship to Sleepaway Camp, Joan and Sapphire? When did you first see the film? And what did you think of it when you first saw the film, good or bad? Uh, Sapphire, you go first. I want. I want to. I, I. I have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So I had actually never seen it until this week. Um. But I knew about the twist. I knew a little about the movie. I just never had the chance to actually sit down and watch it. Um. And I have a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. I'm very confused. I took notes, and I literally, I literally was writing, "What is the plot of this movie?" Like every five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question to have. (laughs) What is the plot of this movie? Joan, (laughs) what were your thoughts when you first saw uh, Sleepaway Camp? So, okay, so I'll say it's really hard for me to talk about this movie, talk about my relationship with that without talking about what, like, the big twist, like, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm. so so can I, can I, can I drop it? Totally. Yeah. Okay, so the, the big twist of this, the big twist of the movie is that you find out at the end, uh, Angela is actually Peter. Uh, Angela, in, in reality, what happened is the, uh, Angela was the twin who died in the boating accident. Uh, Peter goes to stay with his, with his crazy aunt, um, and his aunt is, like, this, like, like, batshit insane character from a, like, you know, feels like, like, feels like from a, from a, like a, a SCTV, like a, she feels like she's like, like a, from like an SCTV parody of That's like true. whatever happened to baby Jane or something. And she's just like, the, <laughs> she's, true. she's like this crazy woman who's like, I already have a son and I've only wanted a daughter. So she forces Peter to live as Angela and uh, and that's what we find out at the end that uh, the person committing all the murders has been Angela, who's actually Peter, um, and and that's kind of the big twist. And it's 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 revealed in what I would describe as a very like shocking kind of um, I, I would say like effective on a on a shock scare level, but also mm-hmm. in a way that's very kind of like tawdry and kind of fetishizing both like. Mm-hmm. What I, I don't I, I it's it's the la- it's so hard to discuss the language of this movie because it, it it or to really talk about this movie because it's really not about like tra- it's not really about trans issues but it is right. but it is like preying upon it is it is preying upon like fear of of transgender people fear of gender nonconforming people to like to elicit the scares and 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 be effective so even so like. It, you know, Peter is not, at least in this movie, I think it, like, changes up as we get into the sequels. Peter is not a trans character, uh, mm-hmm. as, like, uh, but, I mean, but it, 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 like I said, it, like, feeds on a lot of people's fear, a lot of people's fear, especially ba- back then of, like, you know, gender nonconforming people. So it's really, so it's, it's kind of, like, hard to, like, really parse out the language and dissect all that. But, like, I would say, like, I saw this movie for the first time when I was, like, really young and, you know, my, um... Like my like, like my like gen journey of figuring out like my own like uh gender my own my gender and my you know trans identity was was like barely even started and it like real that like ending like really like hit me in a in a weird like I was like I I was like this is 
really scary. Is this really good? Because it's so scary. Why is this affecting me so much? And I don't think, like, I understood, like, why it was affecting me. It, like, it was, like, that ending shot, like, or one of the last shot, or uh, one of the last shots where we see, like, you know, Angela slash Peter, uh, like, kind of, like, screaming in the nude, like, really, like, stuck with me. And it was very much a thing of, like, why is this, like, sticking with me so much? Um, so, it, it's weird. It's, like, one of those things where, like, I, I was processing it before I even knew why I was, pro like, what I was processing or what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's my journey with it. It's so interesting because you're right that it, the language around it is so difficult because I don't know if the filmmakers knew what they were exploiting, what, uh, you know, what, what, what fears they were preying on, but they ultimately were. As I was re-watching it, I was watching it thinking, and maybe you can both help me understand, I've seen this movie probably five times, but rewatching it uh, specifically for this podcast, I was I was even trying to track why. Like, if we just take a couple steps back, why is the reveal that that Angela was uh, was Peter even a, a twist? Like, right. it's not like the characters were actively seeking a um, a male killer, and there were these signs that it that it must be a male killer. And so the females were not suspects, but twist. Angela, uh, Peter had been raised as Angela. It was it was an odd twist to include in the first place. I felt like, and then on top of that, yeah. right? They frame it. They it 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 hits with this reveal that's like, here's your your killer. Here's the yep. most mm -hmm. terrifying thing y you can imagine. And you're right. You're just looking at a, a. I mean, on top of that, it's supposed to be a child. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. nude. So it, it's there's so much going on that 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 is out of I think the filmmakers, uh, not to defend them at all, but being ignorant to even what they were trying to say with this story. I mean, throughout the whole film, and this was another note that I kept writing over and over. I was like, why are they so mean to her? Why do they not like her at all? Like, um, it, I. I guess part of it was just they were confused by why she was so quiet or I don't know. I just, it felt so unwarranted to me. I was just like, why don't they like her? Is it just cause you know, well, she's pretty. And so they're jealous of her. Like I was just trying to like figure out why. And so I guess my theory of what the twist is at the end is that was their explanation of why she was so weird. Like, that's kind of right. how I felt like it was, which is obviously a huge problem. Yeah. Um, but that's, like, what I felt they were trying to say. Yeah. That like, that was that those, explaining something. Right, that those characters, even without knowing um, what we know by the end, that those characters were just innately grieved by this person's presence. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It, and I do think some of it is... Like, I, I think we, we can say that this is not the, like most like top tier movie production we've ever seen it's yes. pretty it's pretty schlocky yeah. it's pretty like you know it, it, i i mean honestly if it weren't for this twist i think this no one would remember this movie i guess there mm -hmm. there are a couple there are a couple like creative deaths in it but for the but i think like this twist is like what like elevates it to like we're still talking it to, about it today status totally um but and i, I mean i uh, you know i think they were making a like a schlocky movie uh like kind of you know cross-dressing gender non-conforming people as horror villains was like a like a trope in the past like you know right. going back to psycho and probably and like like really before that and it's also like a trope that you see really like take uh kind of like take off in the 80s especially like in like in in more highbrow stuff or like 80s early 90s in more highbrow stuff like you know um like uh, like dress to kill dress to dress kill dress to kill and then even dress like you know kill into the early 90s with Silence of the Lambs, you know, I think, you know, uh, as I was saying, like, yeah. whatever you, whatever, like, I, I don't know what they were thinking of it as, but, like, you know, whether it's, like, gender non-conforming, cross-dressing, like, you know, the, they are to be, they are to be distrusted, but they're also just, like, a fun, like, th to them, it's just like, oh, this is just, like, a fun horror trope that, that, that we can kind of, like, pull out to, for, like, a shocking mm -hmm. ending. Like, I, you know, I don't know how much it's, like, really, like, I, you know, I think it is kind of layered in the rest of the film in some, like, more, in some, I mean, it's all problematic, but in some other problematic yeah. ways. But, um, but yeah, like, I, I, you know, I don't think these 
you know, it's obviously their instinct to put this in the movie was toxic and bad and, and yeah. not cool. Um, but I don't think it came from a, I don't think like it came from a place of this director or writer being like, yeah, we need to make a movie like, exp- like, like, you know, that, that explain that like warns people about the dangers of like, of like trans kids. I think it was just like, like, Hey, like wasn't psycho cool. Like wasn't psycho cool. (laughs) Wasn't like dressed to kill. Cool. Mm -hmm. Like that's a cool trope. Let's just throw this into our thing. It'll be a cool twist. I don't think they gave it. It's, it's, and you, it's bad when you don't give that shit that much thought, but I think that's what was going through their head. Like it wasn't that deep. Yeah. I don't think it was that deep and you know, that's bad, you know, in the same way that like, you Mm -hmm. know, like you know, transphobia doesn't have to be that deep. It doesn't have to be that deep, you know. Like ex- just the way, like you know, using like racist tropes or sexist tropes. You know, I don't think it's the 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 directors or the, the directors or writers using those tropes are that de- are going that deep. In fact, I think it's like kind of like almost the opposite, where they're not reflecting on how shitty these things are, and they're just like these are fun tools for me. A like let's face it, probably like straight white filmmaker to use. Right. But for me, when I see, um, you know, that type of attitude in film or media, entertainment, whatever, what it means to me is that, oh, that person uh, just didn't know a single person who would have objected to this, like in their life. Oh, right. You know, Um, because if they had, you know, I'm sure someone would have been like, yo, this maybe don't do this. Right. So like when there is racist, sexist, transphobic stuff in something, it means that they don't know anybody in their close circle yeah. who is that person. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Someone should have get someone should have given uh someone should have given Sleepaway Camp a sensitivity read. Yeah. Okay, so like this whole section at the end, I'm highlighting this. Maybe rethink this. (laughs) Right. Just circle the back five pages. Yeah. I wanted to talk about a lot of the other elements that are at play in this movie um, and get both of you to weigh in. Uh, Obviously, there is, uh, like we talked about, it's um, exploitation of uh, the audience's fear of gender nonconformity. Um, and, uh, and, and you're right that it's present in the genre. It, 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 there's so many films that, that say if there is a character that is gender non-conforming, it means villain. Yeah, Uh, they are, they are like, and it's, and it's like, they're, they are not to be trusted. And I mean, it's, it's all, you know, I think it's all stuff that like psychically seeps into people over time, you know, like, like, you know, like you can see, like, I think you can see a direct link from like sleepaway camp like uh, being like what if there's a like what if what if a what if like a, a little girl at your uh at your at your kids camp is actually like a a, a crazy boy like like to like that that's the same that's just like a a more intense version of like what, what like who are these trans women in our bathrooms it aren't yeah. should we be suspicious of them like so it all like it's just it's it's you know it's 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 just a heightened ver. It's just a heightened version of the, the the this like kind of like toxic philosophy that we see like turfs and stuff spewing now. Why why were the murders happening in the first place? Does is that ever? Really I don't know if we get an answer. That... Like just, it's, have, it's, it's, it have, is also just a bad movie. I have like. <laughs> I have, like, thoughts about this, and I think yeah. it's, like, a, it's another trope that kind of, like, you see throughout uh, these, like, um, these, you know, these, mo- like, movies like Psycho, uh, Dress to Kill, etc., in that, like, like I think a lot of the, like, all the all, all the killings, if you're really paying, if you're kind of paying attention, are, are sexually, like, motivated, or, right. or, or it's, it's I, th- I think, and, you, like, you see this, in, like, this is what Psycho's about, like, this is mm-hmm. what, yeah. like, Dress to Kill is about, it's, like, Angela's, it, it, you know, it's kind of like Angela's sexuality is awakening, and it's driving her, and, like, that, and all of a sudden, there's, like, this, like, push and pull between, like, her, like, female identity and her, but her, like, male, her, like, male um kind of like sexuality and that's what like hmm. drives her crazy and sets her to, and it's like it's like that's exactly what Norman Bates is he like you know yeah. like I mean not exactly but you know like that's a play at psycho and that's literally like the explanation for like the explanation I just gave which is like obviously like bullshit pseudoscientific like nonsense uh it's like literally what they say at the end of uh of dress to kill I think you can see like you see that same philosophy at play in sleepaway camp too that it's like like Angela's like you know 
all of a sudden Angela is like at war with her with her herself. Mm. Right. Everybody's saying, you know, get naked, go skinny dipping. That the that boy is 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 pushing her to go further with him sexually, and it is like the closer you get to the sexuality, the more danger there is. Yeah, or, and I also think, oh, I was gonna say, I think like the most iconic kill in this movie, which is the hair dryer. Well, I'm sorry, no, the the curling iron. The curling iron. Ooh, yeah, is like I felt so, that one. Is <laughs> so sexual. It's so like pseudosexual that yes. like you know it's it's I you know I I I don't know like like we've been saying like the film's pretty schlocky, so I don't think it does like as 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 blunt a job or a specific of a job as like connecting those dots. But I think those dots are there. It's there. No, you're right. It is there. So looking at Sleepaway Camp now, we like to, in this segment, decide, is there a way to remake, uh, reboot Sleepaway Camp for a modern audience? And uh, I guess my question is, if either of you were given that task, given what the film is known for, is there any way forward? Because without the reveal that we've all discussed is is uh, based in a pretty toxic point of view, then what is sleepaway camp? If you if you take out that reveal, you're being tasked with I guess just you're just <laughs> yeah. you're re, you're remaking um, a camp slasher. I don't know. What's mm-hmm. your thought? Is there a way to take what's presented in sleepaway camp and and redeem it at all, or is it better off dead? So the weird thing about this, like m- like the, about the end of sleepaway camp, is that on a strictly like academic like theoretical level. If like you know, it it does it in a very it does it in a very toxic way, and the movie does not recognize it's doing this. But like like if we're just discussing like the idea of the ending of 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 Sleepaway Camp, it is it does like fall in line with like in a very. I, I I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but it does like in a way it does like it does fall in line with like like some tra- with like trans theory. It's like. Like Peter is not Peter is a cis boy forced to live in the like wrong gen like in the wrong gender and that's what makes him you know sad and miserable like just like looking at the story like that it's not the story of Angela this is the story of Peter this is the story of a little of a a little boy who's forced to ro- live in the wrong gender and it and, and you know it makes him it makes him sad but um, there's still that thing of like you know. Like that's still in there. I, I don't think the movie know the movie obviously doesn't know that's what it's dealing with. It's just sloppy and tawdry and exploitative. But like you know, you can't. So like, I wonder if you like that's what you pull from it. Like it's a like a horror a horror camp movie about like kid like kid like what like what about kids who are fo- like you know forced to conform to something that they don't like they aren't and they don't want to be. And that's why I'm like, could you like what if you reset Sleepaway Camp at a like at a like Christian like like conversion Ooh. camp, like <laughs> kind of flip it and like you have like it's like you know I I I, I like kind of flip it and it's like you know the tra- like the queer kids are like the here are the heroes and you know it's the kind of like it's like the brainwashing conformity of like you have to be like you know that like drives some I, I it's like I don't want to put it's just like I don't want to put like a queer kid in the like villain in the villain role like it's just like we have I want to like it's like basically it's like I like Angela's the hero Angela's like the hero of this one she's like set like it's Angela is a trans a trans girl who's sent to like to to sleep away camp to like conf- to like you know to like have that not like knocked out to la- knocked out of her like prayed out of her and like she saves the day when she can finally like embrace her her identity as Angela um as as you know and she and making her the final girl that's kind of what I would that's like what I think I, I would lo- watch that I love that idea yeah and the villain the villain is this uh, uh you know it's making me think of Adam's family values with uh. Um, Christine Baranski, like the villain is this Christian counselor that, that, that is basically doing what, whether they knew it or not, the filmmakers of the original were doing where they're vilifying this character. These, this Christian counselor thinks that these kids are, you know, they're the problem and they're, they're what's wrong. And so maybe the counselor is, is killing these kids that are only truly being themselves. And Angela has to rise up to defend uh, and yeah. say, yeah, the, the, the kids that are... I I mean, I love that take. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a movie that I would watch, and it's a movie that I think accurately would use the parts of Sleepaway Camp that 
people like, but then turn it around in a way that, you know, doesn't vilify queer people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with remaking movies that are problematic, the biggest issue is just changing who the villains are and the heroes are, because just historically heroes have always looked and been the same types of people and also the same types of actors, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, even simply thinking or just the fact that for the movie they used a cis girl but then at the for the reveal they used a cis man um you know it just shows also that they that still had to be separated you know they couldn't cast an actual trans person for that role yeah well joan thank you so much for joining us uh i loved your take on a reimagined sleepaway camp i hope somebody hears this and green lights that project talk to me green light it please (laughs) hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Bria Grant has had a wild year, writing and directing 12-hour shift and writing and starring in Lucky. Here's our conversation with her about the hard work and ingenuity that leads to the year of Bria Grant. Bria, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you. Um, Why don't we start off by having you tell us about your involvement with 12 Hour Shift and Lucky? Yeah. um, So I wrote and directed 12 Hour Shift, uh, which is out right now. Everyone can watch it. It's on VOD. It's um, a dark comedy slash horror. It has Angela Bettis and David Arquette in it. And then I wrote and starred in uh, Lucky, which is directed by Natasha Kermani. It's like a surreal slasher. And um, it will premiere on Shudder in February. You, in essence, have two features coming out at the same time. That's uh, that's impressive. <laughs> how how did they each come to be, and how long have they been gestating for? Yeah, they were supposed to premiere at festivals a month apart because Lucky was supposed to go to South by Southwest and Tri and Twelve uh, Hour Shift was supposed to go to Tribeca. So I was like headed to both, and then COVID happened, and I headed to neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a year! What what a time to be alive! Um, how did they happen? So I shot them three weeks apart last year which oh wow i know it it was it was it was wild for sure it was it was it was a tough time but i also um as you know as a filmmaker i i had been trying to get these projects made forever like most filmmakers and then they just kind of happened to happen at the both the same time and i was like you know i can push one but at the same but i'm worried like then it won't happen and so i'm just going to push myself instead <laughs> so yeah. it was tough but i was um while we we shot 12 hour shift first in arkansas and then i had 3 weeks off and then we started lucky which was the right way for me to do it cuz i starred in lucky but i didn't direct it um and and we were able to finish most of the rewrites you know far before we we started shooting um and so the only thing that kind of um crossed over is that I had some days where I was editing 12 hour shift during the day and then I'd go do lucky all night long but it was only a few days like it was very it was very few so I was able to pretty much keep it separated what was the inspiration for 12 hour shift um a lot of things I'm from a small town in east Texas and I and I wanted to write something about where I grew up in the 90s um now it takes place in Arkansas because Arkansas has great tax credits for anybody who's looking to make a movie oh, good to know <laughs> um, it actually is great the Arkansas Film Commission shout out to them they were wonderful um so I, I wanted to write something about like small town s- stuff and then I also love um, urban legends and I love that one where the person wakes up in the bathtub and they are missing a kidney and it like says on the mirror or whatever like go to the hospital right now and this is sort of my <laughs> answer to where where that kidney went. How does an idea for you go from okay I'm interested in telling this story about where the kidney went and what happens to that <laughs> victim uh, practically, how does that become a, a feature film? I mean, obviously, financing is a big part of it. 
And I, th I think a lot of things people don't understand is that every film is a riddle. Every feature that gets made, especially in indie, uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and there seems to be a lot of serendipity. Um, how did you get linked up with the production company that you did the short with that eventually led to 12-hour shift? Yeah, I mean, so much serendipity and so much like, oh, someone I knew however many years ago reached out to me and blah, blah, blah. blah. Like, that's always kind of the story. Mm. I mean, just as far as, like, the script's journey, there's a good year, year and a half of writing and rewriting that script. And I spent a ton of time, because that script has so many moving parts, um, like, taking it apart, putting it back together, taking it apart, putting it back together. So I wrote on that one for a long time. Um but the company that I did the short with, um, I know them because they did this is see this is what they did behind the scenes on a show I did called Real Housewives of Horror. They did the behind the scenes videos, um, and which I don't think ever saw the light of day. I'm not even sure they did that, and then they did a little short a few years after that, and were like, "Will you come to the desert and do this short with us for like two days as an actress?" And I was like, "Yeah." And then they kept making stuff, and I was like, kind of following them, and then I reached out and I was like, "Hey, I want to make this short." I'm good. I know that I'm good at these things. I'm bad at certain things that you would not believe I'm bad at, but here's what they are. Will you help me make this short? And and um, they did. And then what are, that's how what are some of those things? What are some of those bad things? Um, I hate. <laughs> I hate asking for locations. I know that's such a weird <laughs> thing. Like I will ask my friends to work for free so much, and I do pay. I I pay my friends now, but locations. Something about that, like really, like. <laughs> freaks me out and like I was like I think I can do everything else um I need you know and they also one of them is a cinematographer so that was really helpful too um but yeah it, I, needed, I needed help like finding certain certain doing certain organizational things um and and um and vfx certain vfx and uh and locations the thing is as an indie director you're expected to be the swiss army knife of sorts and yes we we have to be but it's also about building a team and there's going to be things that uh, that you're better at and there's also going to be things that are just better left to someone else handling. Well, I think also um, like as you mature as a director and as an artist, it's important to realize what maybe you're not good at because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we will try to do all the things because we're like, I can, I'm capable. I'm capable of staying up all right. night and painting this room and making it's it look like, a, you know what, I can do it all, right? Because you really can and you're expected to and there's something about the like, um, you know, the like armor you get and like the medals you give yourself for like doing all these things that by all by yourself. But I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, like delegating is actually a part of maturing as an artist and learning like, hey, you know what? I don't have to do everything. And maybe there are people who've been working at this much longer than I am. And even if it's as dumb as like, I hate going into a business and asking, can we shoot here for very little money? But other people love doing that kind of crap. I'm like, that's great. You should go do that. So I can sit here and make the script as good as possible because I know I'm good at that yep. thing. I know. I, I feel like that's something that a lot of people overlook um, when trying to work in some aspect of like entertainment or like something creative like I think the reason why people take on so much is partly because they they don't trust that other people can handle the thing that's like in their head they're like no 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 I'm the only person who like knows how to do this and um, that never really works out sometimes because you end up just totally expending all of your energy and then your work is just not good because you're so yeah. like yeah spread thin yeah and here's the thing some people are going to disappoint you and i they disappoint you at all levels right. yeah like I, at any project i'm on there's always someone where i'm like that person what's up with that guy like right. he doesn't care that he's here huh like someone <laughs> you know but for the m most part i think like the more faith you put in people the more mm -hmm. they're they will actually do the thing that they want to do because they're passionate usually about what they're doing and like Right. I want yeah. someone who to to take control of those things that like I don't know anything about clothes like I just don't and I don't, like someone else needs to figure <laughs> that out and like I can say whether or not it fits the vision but I I'm I shouldn't really be shopping at H and M at 10 p.m. on a Saturday the night before totally. we shoot you know what I mean? <laughs> what was your journey like as a director yeah. that prepared you for 12 hour shift? Got it. And, and then once you were on set, was there anything, I know there always is something unforeseen, but what are some of the primary challenges that you experienced on 12-hour shift? Yeah, I mean, every day is a winding road. Uh, I think every day is a complicated <laughs> jigsaw puzzle. Um, 
Yeah, so um, I was an actress on a show. It was started as a web series called Eastsiders. Eastsiders got picked up by Netflix, um, and my buddy created it. Um, he literally shot part of the first season in my apartment. Like, that's, like, how small the web series it was, and then it went on to become this bigger show um, on Netflix. And um, in the last season, I wrote and directed an episode, which was really helpful for me, like, just thinking more about directing, thinking more about writing, like within like um, within a structure, you know that that was super helpful um, and, and built my confidence a lot as a writer director too. Um, so that was sort of my journey, and then I and then I ended up doing twelve hour shift. But I mean, along the way, I'm on set all of the time. Like that acting has been my main job for uh, twelve years. This has been my job for twelve years. 13 years. Uh, and, um, I just am very comfortable on a set. I'm comfortable with set culture. I know that's not, that sounds so weird and like pretentious and I'm sorry. Everyone who's like, like immediately turned this off when I said set culture, set life, (laughs) hashtag set life. Um, I know. Oh, for sure. Um, this is my office today. Uh, (laughs) Uh, where's crafty and oh my God, (laughs) grips. Am I right? Um, uh, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think I just kind of used what I knew and used what I liked seeing as a direct, seeing in directors. Like I like my directors to be, um, essentially camp counselors, you know, like kind Mm -hmm. of like fun, (laughs) enthusiastic, lets everyone do their thing, but is like on top of things and maybe one, at least one, if not more steps ahead of everyone else, but not pressury about it. And I just, I just tried to keep my cool. I also shadowed some directors. I I have a a director um, mentor that I shadowed on some on TV. And, um, I talked to him a lot about his, um, philosophy about directing. And he also has that attitude where everything is like, you just always have a decision made, whether it's yeah. right or wrong, have a decision made, have an overall goal, and then be chill about it. You know, you don't have to yell at people. You don't have to shove things down people's throats. And if you do yell, so that way when you do actually say, like, this needs to happen, like, then people will listen to you. So, like, right. <laughs> you know, people actually take you seriously, like, the one moment you're like, this needs to move, like, right now. You know, and I think mm-hmm. I never raised my voice above that, what I just did. Um, so I try to kind of emulate that. Um, and on 12-hour shift, yeah, there's, like, hard days on every shoot. On every shoot, there's days where you're like, what am I doing here? Why did I choose this as a job? There's so many jobs <laughs> where I would not be physically exhausted. <laughs> I would not be hating my coworkers. I would not yeah. physically want to fight my coworkers. <laughs> um, where I don't feel like I have ruined my life. And, um, and, and jobs where, like... Like, I often think about, like, there's whole jobs where your ego doesn't get in the way, which is such a... Mm-hmm. Right. Can you imagine? Like, what a miracle. <laughs> you, like, have a job where yeah. you aren't constantly, uh, you know, trying to figure out, is this me talking or my ego talking, which is the conversation I have with myself all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I will say, like, just to point out things that go wrong in a movie, uh, the opening shot of 12-Hour Shift was a really specific, complicated... Uh, shot that was we were using a gimbal and we were, it was walking and it was taking in all these these characters walked in and the other one walked through and blah 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 and the gimbal broke the day we were supposed to do it so um, of course. Uh, the opening of the movie is not what I want it to be I mean it, it was just not what my vision was for it and I think it yeah. ended up working fine um, it's very still the opening of the movie and I off, I wanted it to have a lot of movement and um that's just the kind of thing you have to do. It's indie set, and what am I? What are we gonna do? We're not gonna go buy another gimbal at you know six thirty in the morning in Arkansas. <laughs> at a certain point, you've got to say, okay, can I make my circumstance is the boss? You know. Yeah, I always uh, ask myself. Circumstance is the director. Right. If if it's a reasonable compromise, like is this reasonable? Yeah. Am I being unreasonable by saying no to the, this? And like. Totally. I, I don't want lessons in mediocrity, but I do I don't mind a lesson in compromise every once in a while. You know, like that that's the goal. So you had mentioned that you wrote Lucky, but you ended up not directing it. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, yeah. So when I took the movie to Epic, they wanted to work with Natasha and um they really responded to the script, but they were looking for something for Natasha specifically because they really liked her for they did her first movie, which was called Imitation Girl. And I had known Natasha socially and I'd seen Imitation Girl. We actually have the same manager, which this had nothing to I mean, 
it's not nothing to do with it because we connected through our manager before all of this. But we know each other socially, um, and I thought she was really cool and really interesting. And I think she's just really calm and smart and has such strong vision. And she just responded to the script and said things that made me feel like, oh, I trust this person with the script. I also think she has such a unique way of filmmaking. I think her projects look super cool and beautiful. And she, she like I said, she just had a very strong vision. And I was like, great. I think that, like, I don't mind, uh, you know, the script that I kind of consider my baby because it has, like, a lot of personal things in it. Um, for me, like, I want this other person to take control of it. And, and there was part of me that wanted to let that go, too. Because, I, I mean... I, I was coming off a 12-hour shift, which I wrote and directed. My first movie, I wrote, directed, and starred in. And I was like, it, it, I, it's okay for my stuff to be interpreted by other people. And I want to see what they did. And honestly, I have to say she did something so much better than what I would have done with the movie. Like, I can, hmm. I can say that 100%. It's so interesting. It's so cool. And she just took it very seriously and very um, just had this really amazing take on the movie. And... Um, I couldn't have done anything like it. So I'm super happy that that's the way it ended up. Well, how do you feel now uh, having these two features coming out? And I know it's been a, a wreck of a year for the the globe, <laughs> but uh, the features are, are, one is out and one is coming mm-hmm. out very, very soon. Do you feel like, just speaking professionally, um, are you able to, I guess, uh, gather enough traction even though the festivals have been virtual and there hasn't been as much traditional fanfare because of the state of the world have you been able to kind of gather enough traction to launch or build out the next project um i mean you know i always have a couple things cooking like i always have like some things some pot simmering like something's in the microwave like i'm letting some <laughs> dim dough rise in the ca- i'm just i'm just cooking during quarantine yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, oh there wasn't a metaphor <laughs> right no you're just literally I'm just there's something literally proving just there's a soup. Yeah. um yeah i have some things cooking and i think also uh yeah releasing a movie in co- during covid is not ideal um we were in some theaters, but, you know, I, that's not super helpful. We played drive-ins, uh, a couple of drive-ins, but um, we also came at a weird time, I think. Um, but the movie's doing well, which is rad, and people are watching it, which is really rad, because that's the whole goal. Like, the goal is to make the thing, and then people watch the thing, and then that's mm-hmm. the goal has achieved. I actually don't really even care if people watch it. I mean, I do. Financiers don't listen to me, um, uh, but I, um, I mostly just like making it. I love the process of of making. But yeah, um, think I think it's got it's done enough to get people to. I, I think my whole goal is to like be like, hey, I can do this. Um, I want to do this. I want to continue to do this. And like when I do it, I'm going to do something unique and cool, and it's going to be surprising in a way that maybe other movies are not surprising. Um, and I think I achieved that to the, to, I mean, I don't want to like say too much, but yes, I think I did achieve that to the point where like, yes, like call things are, thing, things are happening, which is exciting. I think it's clear from 12 hour shift that what's most important to me about a filmmaker is that there's a point of view and that there's a voice and there is clearly a voice and clearly a voice that I would want to hear more from. So I think mm-hmm. mission accomplished. I mean, I can only speak for me personally, but even with the you know pandemic of it all and the, the festival premieres kind of changing, uh, I still think it, it was a, a clear win because it was yes. something that was executed in your voice and, uh, and it reads, you know, that there's Thanks. someone there's a perspective behind the camera, and I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, because I think the problem, I mean, the, the problem with indie filmmaking is that it's so frightening because you have so such limited resources. So you're yeah. constantly just trying to do the best you can. Like, it's literally like you're just trying to, like, you know, keep your ship afloat all the time while there's, like, a hundred holes in the bottom, but then also do something creative at the same time. That was a weird metaphor, mm-hmm. I understand, but, like, I feel like... I like Okay, it. thank you. Uh, <laughs> Sapphire's here for it. Um, I appreciate that. But I think you're, like, trying to, like, keep all these holes plugged and figure things out, and it's so hard to make any sort of 
interesting, weird choices, but at the same time, the indie marketplace is so full of movies, especially genre movies. And so you kind of have to do something cool, you know? And, like, I love indie genre movies, and I haven't seen all of the ones that have come out this year. So I think... um, Taking a big swing is 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 tough in like the indie world, like trying to do something cool. And like to my producer's credit, they never once questioned when I was like, we were shooting one day, and I was like, I think I'm gonna put a musical number in the middle. And they were like, what? And I was like, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna put a musical number. I, I'm gonna figure it out tonight. And they were like, okay. And like never <laughs> once, never once. And later on, Matt, my producer, uh, who who wrote the song, uh, was like, I never thought this would make it into the movie, <laughs> which was great. But I mean, I think this is what we struggle with as in the indie world is that where people don't realize what you're up against when you're trying to do this crap, you know, like it's so hard, it's so hard to do all these things and try to get the movie made period, much less like get everyone on the same team to take some huge swing and, and mm-hmm. do something crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bria. I think this was a really enlightening conversation, and and I'm excited to see what you do next, and I will definitely be checking out Lucky as soon as it is out on Shudder in February. Thank you. Welcome to the Altar Society. It's the first official meeting of the Altar Society. Um, If you joined with us and watched the films that we said we'd watch before this week, then welcome. Welcome to the Altar Society. First up, we watched May the Devil Take You, and because it's our first week, we wanted to give you a double whammy, we Mm -hmm. watched May the Devil Take You 2. They are Indonesian horror films, they are demonic, supernatural, possession, kind of zombie, kind of haunting. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in both of the films. Um, So, Sapphire, let's take it film at a time. May the devil take you. What did you think of this? So one of my favorite subgenres of horror is the demonic possession, supernatural type of stuff. Like anything that Mm -hmm. deals with like black magic, spells, curses, uh, things going in bodies, lots of gore. (laughs) That's my jam. Um, And so this movie definitely had that. Um, and I, I really enjoy the Indonesian horror movies that I have seen so far. I think that, like, they... they I actually really enjoy a lot of the kill scenes that they do. Yeah. Um, they can get really creative, and they are really graphic and terrifying. Yeah. Um, I personally really liked the opening scene of this movie a lot. Um, I thought it was really spooky. Um, but yeah, what about you, Bowser? I also respond to all of the ingredients here. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, yeah, I love curses. I love things being being drawn on dirt with chalk. And uh, I guess you wouldn't necessarily call them voodoo dolls in Indonesian mm, culture. I don't know, maybe right. you would. But, but uh, dolls being used in magic. Um, I, I really thought the, the movie from the top pulled me in. And, I, and one thing I, I, I noticed in both this and... A few weeks ago, you and I talked about another Indonesian horror film called Impedigore. Yes, we did. Um, and, and I don't know enough about Indonesian horror to know if this is a trend, but it seems like uh, both of those films, Impedigore and this, innately had really strong sense of character. Mm-hmm. Um, and the character dynamics were interesting and uh, were unexpected. The, the character dynamic in May the Devil Take You is about step-siblings. Yeah. And and the repercussions of their father's oath, or you know, to to give his his soul in essence mm-hmm. to the devil years prior, and it's just not the normal relationships. I guess we've grown accustomed to seeing explored in in a lot of American horror films. I will say, I think I enjoyed "May the Devil Take You" more than "May the Devil Take You Too." I um, hard agree. Okay, so what worked for you about the first one? that maybe didn't work so much about the follow-up? I like simplicity. I think that the first one, um, because there was less characters, um, and, like, it was very clear, like, okay, Alfie um, has this very, very strained relationship with her step-family, and now she's Mm -hmm. stuck in this house where they're all... Like, she's forced to be in this house with them, and there's this (laughs) freaking demon floating around threatening their lives, and so she has to 
kind of, you know, learn how to get over these feelings that she's had and, you know, look past all that stuff. And mm-hmm. the the thing about the sequel, there's too many people, new people, first of all, yeah. too many new people. And then I think in the beginning, they sort of do the data dump thing where they're like, hey, here's our backstory. Here's why we're all here. Here's why you should care about us. But it wasn't enough for me to actually care about them. I mean, honestly, yeah. what they went through was a horrible thing. But I, when there's too many people and too many things to keep track of, that's where I sort of get very lost. Because um, I like I don't think that any of those characters were developed enough. We're given enough time to develop enough because there were so many of them. I I like the fact that it, it did have a. I don't think I'd be remiss in saying it. it was inspired by Sam Raimi. It had to be. Oh, um, very Evil Dead vibes with going underground with the book. Yeah. <laughs> they got the book. Uh, it, even the drawings in the book look like the Necronomicon. They're, mm-hmm. they're, the bad thing is in the cellar. Yep. You know, that's where the bad stuff happens. Even um, the, like, spirit moving around. That, like, totally. Yeah, it all very, very much... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Point of view of the spirit as it kind of leaves one body and goes to another and seeks out the next victim. Um, But yeah, I agree that... uh, So I like the energy of both of them, Mm -hmm. but it felt like uh, much... It was easier to to follow the character dynamics during number one, whereas in number two, um, I got a little lost. I agree. Yeah. So I think we both agree, May the Devil Take You was was better than May the Devil Take You 2. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend, if somebody said, should I watch these, both of them, one of them, would you recommend they watch them? Or would you say, you know what, pass? I would recommend the first one. I enjoyed it enough. Um, I thought that they're, oh man, like the part where she's tearing off her face. Love that. I thought that was so cool. Love that. I recommend it for that scene alone. (laughs) There, yeah, I there were so many great practical gags and, and great images. Um, the digging in the stomach towards the end of the, mm-hmm. the to get the hair out. Uh, I love movies that get that weird with their gore, that get yeah. so specific with their gore. Um, and there's a lot of that in part one that I think works better than some of the gags in in part two. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's come up with a rating system for the Altar Society. Maybe right. it's maybe this maybe this week it's specific to May the Devil Take You. If you had to give May the Devil Take You and May the Devil Take You Two, you know, three out of five blanks, mm-hmm. what what would it be in the world of this movie? What would it be? Hmm. What about like tiny uh tiny I was gonna say voodoo dolls, but that's not what they are. Tiny dolls. Right. <laughs> Tiny dolls, uh, yeah. or tiny sacks of bloody hair. Yeah, oh, I forgot about that. Uh, how many sacks of tiny bloody hair do you give it? Uh, it can be any rating system you want. Why don't you rate it based on tiny dolls? How many tiny voodoo dolls do you give May the Devil Take You? <laughs> tiny. Out, Out of, of five. five? Yeah. I'm like going back and forth between three and four. So should I do 3.5? I think 3.5 works. Yeah, I would uh, say my rating of how many sacks of tiny bloody hair, uh, I would give May the Devil Take You three sacks of bloody hair. All right. Uh, digested hair. Yeah, um, God. So now how <laughs> how many voodoo dolls do you give May the Devil Take You to? I think we're on the same page with that one. I give May the Devil Take You to 1.5 tiny digested sacks of bloody hair. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this week's Alter Weekly. Before we sign off, here's what's coming up on Alter. On November 16th, The Girl in the Woods. A woman faces her worst fear after she gets into a car accident on an isolated forest road. On November 18th, Fragile.com. A teenage girl who, more than anything wants to be told she's special, is approached by a charming man who promises her fame, fortune, and affection. If she agrees to livestream herself crying for his niche website, Fragile.com. And then on November 20th, Atomic Ed. Ed is the favorite victim of the neighborhood gang. When one of the members of the band is found horribly mutilated, Ed has no choice but to become the one he has always dreamed of being. 
That's it for this week's episode of Alter Weekly. Until next time, stay altered. You can find new episodes of Alter Weekly every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and download. Alter Weekly is produced by Andrew Bowser with theme music by Sapphire Sandalo. Alter Weekly is executive produced by Stephen Michael at Gunpowder and Sky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.